You are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio, and this is episode number 81. Hey, I'm your host, Dr. Yami. I'm a board-certified pediatrician, certified health and wellness coach, author, and speaker. I'm also a passionate promoter of the power of diet and lifestyle in preventing and reversing chronic disease and bringing joy and longevity into our lives. This podcast is focused on plant-based nutrition, habit formation, motivation, and mindset so that you can have the tools to live the best life possible. Are you ready to get started? Let's do this. People talk a lot about like, oh, well, I only eat organic milk or I only eat low fat milk or or this and that, no matter what kind of milk you're drinking, those proteins are the same in every single one and, and have the same detrimental effects on growth and cancer risk and late, late onset disease risk. Hello, hello, veggie lovers. Oh my gosh, I am so pumped right now. I just got done recording the most amazing episode with Dr. Jackie Bussey, a plant-based pediatrician. We talked all about dairy. Oh my gosh, it is so good. I cannot wait for you to hear it. But of course, before we go there, there's a few other things I want to mention. First of all, happy 2020. I'm actually recording this now in 2020. This is my first one to record in this new year. I hope that your new year has been fantastic, that you hit the ground running on your intention, your goals, your vision, all of the above. So sending you love and positive energy for that journey. The other thing is, if you haven't already signed up for my newsletter, I invite you. There's two different ways to do it. You can go to dryami.com forward slash sign up. And that's D-O-C-T-O-R-Y-A-M-I.com. You can also text the word fiber, F-I-B-E-R, to 66866. It'll lead you through the process of how to sign up for my newsletter. It is a weekly newsletter and it'll give you access to the podcast and any other news and information that you may find valuable. So thank you so much for doing that. Thank you also for everybody that has read my book so far, and I so, so appreciate the reviews that you have been posting. I wanna take a second to read a review by Susan P. Richards. She titles it, Practical Information That You Can Apply Today, and It's Not Just For Parents. Bravo, Dr. Yami. I appreciate this book so much as a mom, as a nurse practitioner, and as a career public health professional. A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating is a wonderful practical guide to shaping relationships with food and developing healthy eating habits. Dr. Yami's style is approachable and relatable. She weaves her own personal experiences as a woman, mom, and pediatrician, making a potentially dry subject super fun and easy to understand. She teaches us to set healthy boundaries while being kind and gentle with ourselves and our families. She has great tips you can apply immediately, like the play food drawer we are currently implementing with our family. 
Although this is a parent's guide, it is absolutely applicable to anyone. I recommend this book to anyone seeking to improve their health and relationship with food. Susan, thank you so much for that warm review. I appreciate it so much. Okay, so let me tell you about today's esteemed guest. Dr. Jackie Bussey is a board-certified pediatrician with expertise in plant-based nutrition for kids and families. Dr. Bussey grew up in Madison, Wisconsin, and received her undergraduate and medical degrees from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She went on to do a pediatric residency and chief residency at Rush University in Chicago. Shortly after moving to California in 2011, she was introduced to the China study and it changed her life and practice. She has been leaving and teaching a whole food plant-based lifestyle ever since. As a founding member of the Pediatric Working Group of the Plantrician Project, she was the lead author and editor of the Pediatric Quick Start Guide, published in 2018, and spoke at the International Plant-Based Nutrition Healthcare Conference in 2019. As an expert lecturer for the T. Colin Campbell Center for Nutritional Studies, she recently rebuilt the pediatric and family lecture modules for the plant-based nutrition certificate program offered through eCornell. In addition to her full-time general pediatrics practice in Santa Cruz, California, Dr. Bussey teaches an ongoing whole food plant-based nutrition series for adults as well as the nutrition component of a lifestyle medicine series for kids. She is a member of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine and a fellow of the American Academy of Pediatrics. Most importantly, Dr. Bussey is a mom to two thriving plant eaters, now three and five years old. She is passionate about sharing her knowledge, insights, and personal experience with plant-based lifestyle. Guys, this interview is so fantastic, so high yield. Dr. Bussey is like super smart. She has so many amazing things to tell us. So I hope that you really, really enjoy this episode. Can I please ask you a little favor? If you have time, please rate and review my podcast subscribe to it. And if you really like this episode and you feel that other people would benefit from it, can you please share it? Either text it to somebody or share it on social media or email somebody the link. Share it because I really think that this episode, especially for parents, especially for parents that are struggling with their kids, any chronic conditions, this might be just really what they need. So I really appreciate you taking that extra step. I know it takes time out of your day and believe me, I'm not one that has a lot of extra time to do things like this, but if you're really enjoying this podcast, I would really, really appreciate your support. And pretty soon I am going to start reading podcast reviews and the intros to these episodes as well so that you can hear what other listeners have to say. Veggie lovers, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you love it as much as I do, and I hope that you have a plantastic day. Now on to the interview. Dr. Bussy. Thank you so much for being on Veggie Doctor Radio today. I have gotten to know you a little bit over social media, and I'm just so impressed with everything that you're doing, and I'm so grateful to have you on the show today. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. 
Well, we have a lot to talk about today, so I want to go ahead and get started. But first of all, if you could just please tell me and my listeners what got you to where you are today. Tell us a little bit about your plant-based journey. Yeah. So I always love hearing everyone's stories. Um, I wasn't looking for this at all. So I grew up in Wisconsin and my grandpa was a dairy farmer and we grew up eating meat and cheese every day. Um, when I moved out to California with my husband, which was 2010, a coworker of his, who's a nurse and also a seventh day Adventist mm. gave him a copy of the China study. Mm. And so he started reading it and kept stopping like, oh my gosh, you have to look at this. So we ended up reading it together and within, I don't know, 50 or 100 pages, put the book down and cleaned out our whole kitchen and basically went vegan overnight. Whoa. Like I just blown away by the evidence. And I'm sure like many people, that whole, why on earth haven't I seen this? This is so important. We have to do this. So we, so we made that transition really quickly and it was so much easier than I thought it would be. Any of my friends or family would tell you that I was a cheese fanatic and it wasn't that bad. It really wasn't that bad when it's out of sight and you have a partner doing it with you and it's just not available. Um, it really was okay. And then it was probably two years later that uh, I met a colleague who was teaching plant-based nutrition um, and realized that we were eating vegan, not whole food plant-based. And so we kind of made a second transition uh, a little bit later to get rid of the vegan junk food, the tofu sausages, the you know avocado mayo, all that kind of stuff. We stopped cooking with olive oil. That felt like a pretty big transition too. I was surprised how different it felt, like kind of learning how to cook differently and shop differently. Um, so we've been whole food plant-based now for probably about seven years and, and now it's easy and I can't imagine it any other way. And my husband and I have both experienced tons of health benefits ourselves. Um, my allergies got way better, sleeping better, less anxiety. Heartburn for me was the biggest one. Um, I had been on pretty high dose Prilosec for heartburn for years and years and couldn't imagine ever not needing it. Um, and once I went plant-based, even actually when we made the transition to vegan, I was able to wean that down the dose. And now I've been completely off of medication for years with no symptoms. And wow, my, that's impressive. It's really impressive. And I think about how many millions of people are taking these medications every day that probably don't need to. So that was huge for me. My husband's biggest one was probably hypertension. He was on two blood pressure medications and is now completely off of meds and actually got turned away by the Red Cross last year to donate blood because his blood pressure was too low. No way. Off of medicine. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And he's like 105 incredible. over 65 or something now with, with no meds. So whenever you guys were reading the China study, were you hoping that this change would alleviate some of your health problems or what was it about reading the book and you weren't even finished with the book what was it about reading what you did of the book that just really just solidified it for you like all right we're gonna do this I honestly didn't go into it hoping or expecting anything it was more just that the evidence is so compelling 
we would be stupid not to do this. Kind of like learning that smoking is bad for you for the first time and like, wow, I should probably not do this. I literally just had never heard that information that this is, this is not a healthy way to eat. Mm -hmm. Um, so we couldn't ignore it. We, we had to do it. And it was more, I think for the, the long-term evidence, the heart disease risk, cancer risk, like all of that stuff. If there's something that I can do now that is that powerful, I would be stupid not to do it. And then it was kind of like a, wow. And I lost weight and I feel so much better. And this is actually pretty easy. Wow. So before you made that transition, do you feel like, would you have classified your diet as quote healthy? Did you feel like you guys were already interested in healthy diet? You know, of course, like the lean chicken breast, you know, that standard American healthy diet. We were probably somewhere in between. Um, I, I definitely went through phases of being more health conscious and doing exactly what you said, like the brown rice and chicken breast and things like that. Um, but we weren't consistently super health nuts. Mm-hmm. Um, we were probably eating a better than average American diet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. What an impressive story. And, and the dramatic change from your husband being on two blood pressure medications to having a blood pressure so low that they're like, uh, sorry, you can't donate blood because you're a liability to us yeah. if you pass out while you're donating blood. I mean, that's, that blows my mind. That's yeah, crazy. crazy. And he had, he was a division one college athlete and had chronic joint pain that he just assumed he was going to have to live with forever. Like, oh, I was hard on my body. This is what I get. Totally gone. Like it flares up occasionally if we do something like a really long hike or whatever. But for the most part, chronic pain is gone too. Gout is gone. Like things that we, like we wouldn't have classified ourselves as unhealthy or like I didn't think of either of us as having medical problems, but then once they're gone, you're like, wow, I was, I, I was, I was taking medication every day. I had several diagnoses and they're, they're all better if not gone. Oh man, that I love it. And yeah, definitely for like injuries and athletes that have played a lot, we kind of expect that, right? We kind of tell them, yeah, you're going to have aches and pains. You right. injured that joint. You had these issues. It's going to, it's going to happen. So we kind of take that for granted as being part of normal life. Right. Right. And that's exactly what I thought about my allergies. Like everybody in my family has it. This is just a thing that I'm always going to suffer from. And they're still there, but so much better than they used to be. Um, and yeah. I think I see that in clinic all the time too, that families are just living with things that they assume that's their fate. There's nothing they can do about it. This is their normal. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's oftentimes not until those things are gone that you realize how much of a pain in the butt they were. <laughs> yeah. I think you totally adapt. I was talking to my older son about this before is whenever we make a change for the better, we adapt faster than we think. But alternatively, what I've noticed in my life is sometimes you can adapt to negative things. Right. So I grew up with chronic abdominal pain. Like I had stomach pain all the time. It was just part of like, it was just normal. So I didn't even realize it was that bad until I didn't right. have it anymore. And then I was like, whoa, you can actually go through a whole day without your stomach hurting. And then now when it hurts, it's like yeah. a big deal. Like, oh, why do I have stomach pain? It's not very often. But then I remember how, when I was younger, I used to have it like <clears throat> all day long, every day, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Yep. Okay. So that is just, I love that story. That is a great story. So what do you feel like based upon all of this, 
that you've learned, the, all of the evolution that you've been through, what do you think that you're most passionate about right now? I, I guess part of it is, is kind of what we've already hit on, which is trying to change this perspective of what is normal and what human health should feel like. Um, and, and trying to get people to realize that there is not only a better way to do things, but an easy way to do things. And it's like, it's just a win on all fronts. I didn't go into this with really any notion of the environmental importance or the animal welfare importance, but now those things are just as important as the health aspects. And it just blows my mind how good this is on so many levels. And I think we're just so entrenched in the American sort of consumerism way of life that I think the first thing we have to do that I try to do is just to get people to stop and think about like there, there is another way. It's not only safe and okay, you're gonna feel better and all these other things are gonna get better too. Um, and changing that perspective, I think, is where we need to work on things. I love it. And just like you were saying, not only is there an option, but it's probably not as hard as people think it's going to be. No, it's you not. Know? Every so. single patient and friend I've had transition, like every single one of them would agree. Oh, that wasn't as bad as I thought it was. <laughs> I can do this. There's a learning curve for sure, but it's it's doable. The first obstacle is just getting over that mental hump of, I can't do this or it's going to be too hard. Once you get over that, I think you just figure it out. You learn a new way. And actually what I found is that I feel like my eating is way more diverse than ever it had been. Like people oh, think, absolutely. oh, what am I going to eat? I'm just, there's nothing to eat. But I feel like I eat a much larger diversity of food now than before I was plant-based, you know? <laughs> for sure. For sure. We have like so many more spices in the cabinet, so many more different whole grains and types of beans. Like, yeah, every single food category, I think we're eating exponentially a wider variety of things. And, and really, when you think about it, we probably only cut out five or 10 things mm -hmm. total. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think that's another misconception. And, and I think the other big hump is that people think that they have to go hardcore vegan mm. <laughs> and, and don't appreciate the fact that every little change really does count, mm -hmm. that even adding just one serving of fruits and vegetables a day can have measurable improvement in your short and long-term health. Um, and that's the other conversation that I find myself having a lot is like, if, if this is scary to you, that's totally fine. Mm -hmm. Like literally any change you can make will be beneficial for you and your kids and your whole family and so let's just start somewhere and go from there. Absolutely. And because we all have different personalities, it sounds like both me and you, we went full in cold turkey, 100%, and it's good for our personality types. But there are some people that that's just not the way they operate. My husband is not that kind of person. So he had to, over several years, make yeah. the transition that made sense for him and worked with his body. So it's all, it's all acceptable, just trying to think about it and try it out because you never know unless you try, right? It's not like, you know, it, it's not one of those things that has to be permanent. So it's worth giving it a try. So I totally yeah, agree with that. Totally. Okay. So I want to talk about you being a Wisconsin girl, <laughs> cheese addict. I want to talk about dairy. So first of all, you said that 
it wasn't as hard as you thought because dairy is one of those things that is the first thing that comes up, right? Like people are like, I can't live without cheese. There's no way I could do this because I can't live without cheese. But you and I were both pediatricians. So we deal with children. We talk about milk and dairy and all those things like every single day. So tell me about your perspective on dairy. Oh, man, this is such a a central component, I think, to this discussion in pediatrics. Like, that's the holdup for so many people and, and pediatricians included. I feel like most pediatricians I know are pretty comfortable with vegetarian diets for kids. But when you start talking about taking away dairy and milk in particular, um, people get really nervous. <laughs> and and I don't blame them. You know, um, the American Academy of Pediatrics still specifically recommends milk for all children. It's the only food product that is specifically called out. Everything else we talk about carbohydrates and protein, or sometimes we talk about whole grains, but not a specific type of whole grain. Like milk is the only product that they say you absolutely, every child needs, you know, two to three cups a day. And so I totally understand the hesitation. Um, But that's usually where I start with patients. I think if you're only going to do one thing, stop drinking cow's milk. It's probably the most impactful Um, And honestly, a fairly easy change for most families to make. Yeah, I love it. I I go there a lot too. So that's one of my big things is eliminating or decreasing dairy consumption. And then the second one is adding beans (laughs) because I feel like so many people need help with that because that's a good one. Culturally, Americans don't eat a lot of beans, you know, and so trying to get people comfortable with it, they need some time to apply that. I don't okay, think we so, had beans at all growing up. <laughs> yeah. Well, who knows? Wisconsin, you had plenty of cheese. So maybe it was Lots just replaced it. with cheese. <laughs> Lots of it. I'm Panamanian. So I knew, I knew beans. And that's one of the reasons when I first transitioned, I kind of, in my head, I was like, oh, I can do this. Cause I was comfortable and familiar with beans, but a lot of people that grow up in the United States may not be. So adding those beans, getting practice and getting familiar with beans, I think is a benefit. Yep. But back to dairy. Yeah. Are, are, and what are the potential dangers of dairy? Why do you encourage families to give up drinking milk? So one way to think about it, and this is often how I explain it to families, is just breaking down the macronutrients. So let's think about what is actually in milk. First, the milk sugar, which is lactose. So somewhere between 65 and 75% of the world's population is lactose intolerant, meaning that as we get through like into older childhood and then adulthood, we lose the ability to digest the lactose sugar. And that is really sort of the normal state for humans. We weren't meant to drink milk after we were done drinking our mother's milk, which evolutionarily probably stopped somewhere between two and a half and seven years old. Um, I know that that's very unusual nowadays, um, but I think that's how we're built. We're built to drink our mother's milk for a couple of years, and then we wean off and drink water. And so that's the first big piece of evidence is that a huge percentage of people to this day are unable to digest lactose. And that lactose intolerance can come with bloating and pain and diarrhea and decreased appetite and all sorts of symptoms. And probably a huge percentage of people with lactose intolerance don't even know they have it. 
Um, so that's one of my big points, especially when we're thinking about like milk is still, you know, mandated to be served at school breakfast and lunch. Um, and again, it's the only food that's called out. You can, you can meet all the school lunch requirements in lots of different ways, but you have to have the carton of milk. Mm-hmm. And, and so we're mandating serving a food that for some populations in the U.S., are, you know, 90% um, lactose intolerant, especially the kids that are most likely to take advantage of the reduced or free school lunch programs are the kids that are most likely to be lactose intolerant. And so twice a day in the middle of a school day, we're feeding them a food that is, you know, at best not good for them and, and at worst might make them like uncomfortable or in pain or having to use the bathroom in the middle of class. Like that's, it's just crazy to me that we're still in a place where that's the norm across the country. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I just think back upon my early years before I was plant-based and it was just like drilled into me that kids have to have milk. So even when I had children that had lactose intolerance or had constipation from dairy or whatever, my method was to like, okay, let's find a way that you can still have dairy, but not have those symptoms. You know, it was right. just like the craziest thing. And now that I look back, I'm like horrified, but I could, I think that's the way that we were kind of trained to think about it. Okay. Well, right. take this enzyme or get lactose free milk, which isn't actually lactose free. So right. at least 25% of people are going to have lactose intolerant symptoms with lactase free milk or lactose free milk. Um, So yeah, I mean, that's just, it's just incredible to think about it. So kind of explain a little bit, go a step further and, and talk to me about this dairy issue being an issue of social justice. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a big piece of it right there is that, um, we are, we seem to be completely blind to the fact that minority populations, um, especially, are unable to properly digest dairy products. And yet we are mandating the service of these foods to these kids every single day. Um, And not just the carton of milk, but I mean, when you look at school lunch menus, they are so, so heavy in in other dairy as well. Cream sauces and cheese um, every day. Even if there's vegetarian options, it is always grilled cheese and cheeseburgers and mac and cheese (laughs) and pizza. pizza. And cheese pizza every single day. Um, and so I think that's the biggest piece of it right there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So definitely lactose intolerance, which I think most people have at least heard of and many right. people have experienced. So what else? What are the other things about dairy that concern you? Yep. So then you think about, okay, what's the protein in dairy? So the cow's milk protein, I think, is one of the biggest problems. Um for lots of reasons. So for example, um, any pediatrician would agree that we should not give infants whole cow's milk under the age of one. And the reason is mostly that those proteins are really difficult to digest. They can cause inflammation in the gut. They can cross the, um, the barrier of the gut into the bloodstream and cause um, antibody formation. So you can have autoantibodies that form against the um, proteins in the cow's milk, which can then cross-react with other proteins in our body. So ingestion of cow's milk at a young age is exposed to um, several different autoimmune disorders, including type 1 diabetes and muscular sclerosis um, and other problems. 
So that's one issue with the protein. We can't digest it very well, and there's autoantibody formation. Um, I suspect that the protein is um, what links cow's milk intake or exposure um, to a lot of the infantile uh, problems that we see. So infantile colic is strongly linked to um, exposure to cow's milk proteins, whether it's through formula or through um, breastfeeding when the mom is eating dairy products. And for at least, I would say, 30% of kids, if not more, when you take mom off of dairy, the colic symptoms get better. Same thing with early onset and severe infantile eczema. Um, huge improvements when you take babies off of dairy. And these are not things that you know, that I just discovered having gone plant-based. Like these are pretty standard um, things that all pediatricians are taught. There is a link between dairy and eczema and colic um, and babies should not have cow's milk. That is well accepted. But yet most pediatricians are totally comfortable using cow's milk formula and starting kids on cow's milk the day they turn one. And I just don't understand that leap of you know, we, we all understand the link to disease and the um, indigestibility of these proteins, but yet somehow a switch flips when kids turn one and now it's not only okay, but we're, we're saying that they, they need this, that is necessary for normal growth and development. Um, and then there's a, no, there's no, a whole nother piece to the protein discussion, which is the cow's milk protein is very different than ours. So cow's milk has, I think it's five times more protein per calorie than human milk, which is what we're meant to consume as young children. Um, and not only is there just way more of it, there are different kinds. So the amino acid profile of cow's milk is very different than human milk too. And cow's milk is very high in um, amino acids called branched chain amino acids, especially leucine. And those branch chain amino acids are very, very good at triggering our growth pathways. Mm -hmm. So insulin-like growth factor and growth hormone um, and something called mTOR, all of which are inappropriately and highly activated by cow's milk protein. The result of all of those pathways being overactivated is what links dairy consumption to several cancers, to kids growing bigger and faster and taller when they're exposed to dairy, to increased rates of heart disease later in life, all of those things. So a lot about like, oh, well, I only eat organic milk or I only eat low fat milk or, or this and that. No matter what kind of milk you're drinking, those proteins are the same in every single one. And, and have the same detrimental effects on growth and cancer risk and late, late onset disease risk. Whoa. Yeah. Well, I'm big. convinced. <laughs> you could talk about cow's milk protein probably just that for like an hour. Yeah. Well, and then the other thing too is the casein and its conversion over to casomorphine, which yes. likely also contributes to one of the most common complaints that we get in the pediatric office, which is constipation and chronic constipation. So that's something that by me and you, we deal with almost every single day. I find there's a very high percentage of my patients that have resolution of their constipation when I get them off dairy, Absolutely. especially if they're eating cheese because cheese yeah. is concentrated in cheese. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, that's, I think one of the most like high yield 
um, changes you can make is, is just taking someone off a of dairy, especially when we're talking about constipation. And those casomorphins are so fascinating. I'm sure you've talked about this before, but like there's a reason that we feel like cheese is addictive. It literally has morphine like compounds in it that make us want to eat more, which again, like evolutionarily, that makes a lot of sense to be addicted to milk in the early years was probably really good for survival. Human milk has the same kind of casomorphins, but in a way, way, way lower level. Um, so the cow's milk casomorphins are a big part of why cheese is literally addictive. And I've also seen some studies linking that the casomorphins might be a reason that there's um, some evidence linking dairy to um, sudden infant death syndrome, mm. that there might be that the morphine like compounds might um, slow the respiratory drive and be, be a contributor to, as well. We don't know for sure, but that's interesting too. Wow. That just gave me chills. I don't think I've heard that one before, but that's, that's an interesting way to think about it for sure. And then whenever you were talking about the different amino acids that can trigger the different pathways, in addition in cow's milk, there's also naturally occurring hormones from the cow herself. And a lot of people think, and I think I was under this impression before I under really understood this, because you can buy this like quote hormone free milk, which means that they didn't actually inject the cow with extra hormones, which they do sometimes to change milk supply and stuff like that. But in mammalian milk, just like in our mom's milk, you know, human milk, there's hormones that exist in that milk naturally as well. Yep, absolutely. And this is um, completely unrecognized by most people. And I didn't realize this either. That was one of the things I discovered early on in my journey was that um, about 90% of milk in industrialized countries, including the U.S., comes from uh, pregnant cows. And so we're talking about, you know, a 600 pound pregnant mammal. And there are, there's just high levels of naturally occurring estrogens and progesterone that you cannot remove. So yeah, you can buy growth hormone free milk, but there are still those naturally occurring reproductive hormones. And it's, I, it's always funny to me because um, people, you know, nowadays we're really more aware of our environmental exposures to hormones. So people are worried about the BPA in their water bottles and the phthalates in their shower curtains and all these, you know, potentially estrogenic compounds that boys might be exposed to when dairy is by far our biggest exposure to estrogen in the environment. Mm -hmm. And so that would make such a bigger impact than all these other little changes. Right. And for a lot of people in the United States, it's multiple times per day that they are consuming dairy in one way or another because it just it's just pervasive it gets everywhere you know there's the there's the cheese sticks and the cheese pizza and the milk and the yogurt and ice cream and it's just like in so many different places and also put into a lot of products so we get exposed chronically to dairy without even really thinking about it yeah i have a list that i hand out in clinic for patients who are ready and willing to do a trial off of dairy, whether it's for constipation or their baby has eczema. Um, and the list is a full page and a half of all the, the names that you might see on the ingredients list that mean that it has dairy in it. It, it, it is hard to avoid. It kind of sneaks in everywhere. Yeah, sure does. Okay. So earlier you had mentioned that you're not sure why as pediatricians and healthcare providers, 
we know that there's these connections because I knew that their connection was there too. When I was a milk pusher, I, I knew it. <laughs> so it's not like I didn't know I was a milk pusher and I knew, but I still couldn't get to that place where I, I could tell families to not drink milk. So there has to be a reason. Are there any potential benefits to dairy consumption? That's an interesting question. Okay. So I think I'm going to answer the way that I know my colleagues would. So, so what are the benefits to dairy? Um, and I think this is how families think about it too. It is an easy way for kids to get a concentrated source of calories and fat and calcium and vitamin D. And that's it. That's what, that's what most people assume are the benefits. And they are right. It is an easy way to get all of those things. Um, but let's, let's knock them down one by one. So vitamin D is artificially added to cow's milk. It does not naturally occur. So that is a non-starter argument. We can get that from anywhere else. The um, calories and fat. So this is the last macronutrient that we didn't talk about. We talked about how lactose isn't good for us. We talked about the problems with cow's milk protein. So what about the fat? Um, the fat that's in cow's milk is uh, mostly saturated fat, uh, which is very clear is linked to high cholesterol and heart disease. And so all of us should be trying to get less saturated fat in our diets. So, so yes, kids, um, especially little kids, maybe you know, like zero to three, they need a higher percentage of fat than adults do, um, but they don't need that to come from saturated fat. It would be better if it didn't. Um, and, and we can easily get that fat from healthier places. So, so I don't like the high saturated fat content of, of milk either. And then calorie wise, that seems so generic to me. Like, yeah, it's an easy place to get calories, but, but there's a million other ways we can get those calories into the diet without all of the downsides that we've already talked about. And then the calcium question I think is the hardest one to answer. Um, but there's a couple of points to consider. So the um, adult literature is pretty clear that populations that drink the most milk have, and, and that take in the most calcium, which usually go hand in hand, um, tend to have the worst bone health. So they have the highest rates of uh, fractures, they have the highest rates of osteoporosis. So this um, you know, th this myth that we've all grown up, up with, which is cow's milk equals calcium and calcium equals strong bones, doesn't really hold up when you look at the literature. So there's, there's more to the story. Um, the pediatric literature tells uh, a very similar story to the adult literature, which is when we study calcium, uh, dietary calcium intake in kids, calcium supplementation in kids, dairy intake in kids, none of those things are associated with improved bone health, either in the short term or long term. They're not associated with um, reduced uh, rates of fractures or uh, better bone density. And when you dig into, well, what, what is important then? If it's not dietary calcium, if it's not dairy, if it's not calcium supplementation, that gets us really good strong bones, what is important and what seems to be way more important than dietary calcium is weight-bearing exercise, especially when we're young, getting enough vitamin D or sunshine, um, eating a diet that's high in fruits and vegetables, which is also diets high in fruits and vegetables are naturally less acidic, which is really good for our bones. 
Um, and yeah, all of those things are way outweigh the impact of dietary calcium. So yes, needs, kids need to get adequate calcium, um, but I suspect not as much as we think. I, I've talked to a lot of dietitians and I really hesitate to put a number out there because we just haven't done the study, but I'm pretty sure that our current calcium RDAs are too high. So on one hand, I can sympathize with people who look at a vegan diet and say, I think it would be really hard to meet your calcium RDAs. They're right. Um, you would really have to be very conscious every day about which foods you're feeding your kids to get in enough calcium. But I also know that, that you know, like all those studies I just cited, the populations who have calcium intakes that are a third or as a quarter as much as we are eating in the U.S., those people have the same or better bone health. So, so I'm, I, I don't worry about calcium in my own kids. It's a hard question to answer when it's being asked by another physician or another scientist because we haven't proven it yet. Every indication points to that we don't need as much calcium as we think and that it definitely doesn't have to come from dairy and it probably shouldn't come from dairy. Wow. That was so amazing. I just want to hug you. (laughs) (laughs) That was so good. That was so good. Um, I, I so agree with you and thank you so much for saying weight bearing exercise because we talk about this whole bone density thing and talk about it. And all that people talk about is calcium and calcium. I'm like, hello people. You have to get strong bones by using your bones. Yeah. And the way I, I teach it when I have classes and when I talk to parents is like, imagine you're an astronaut. We know for sure that astronauts, when they go into space and they don't have gravity, pushing on them that they have to do something like they have to deliberately do exercises to, to use their muscles. It doesn't matter how much calcium you're pumping into that astronaut. If right. they're not using those muscles, it, it, and there's bones and, and pulling on those um, bones from the muscles. It's not going to matter. So I think that that's really, really important. So thank you so much for emphasizing that. And also I agree. I think one thing to remember is that all of these standards we're set by humans and we're set from what we knew best at the time based upon our environment at the time and what we were doing. So I agree that probably the amounts of calcium that are currently recommended by our government is not necessarily as much as we need. Yeah. There was a really, there was a really interesting paper um, the World Health Organization put out that said the same thing. So it's, it's not just little me over here. There's giant organizations who agree. Um, and they, um, they worded it really interestingly, basically like that we should probably have different calcium RDAs depending on diet. And that if you're eating a high animal protein diet, you may need a lot more calcium than if you're eating a plant-based diet, which is so fascinating and, and makes sense with everything else I've read. So I, I loved seeing that from them. That's so interesting. I didn't know about that. When did that come out? Oh boy. Has it been a long time? No, it, some 2010 or later. Okay. Can you explain briefly why that might be? You kind of talked about it a little bit earlier because I think most people would think like, what? If I eat a, a lot of meat and I'm eating a lot of dairy, why would I need even more than somebody who isn't? 
One of the theories is that um, because diets high in animal protein are more acidic, our body has to balance that out somehow. So our bodies are very good at keeping our blood pH in a very small range of normal. So the, our acid level doesn't just go up and up. We, we use um, resources to buffer the acid, to add in something more basic to bring it down to a normal level. Well, one of the most readily available bases to do that with is calcium phosphorus from our bones. So one mechanism that the body uses is actually to leach calcium phosphate out of the bones. They use the phosphate as a buffer, but in the process, we've taken calcium out. Mm -hmm. um, and that extra calcium gets um, excreted in our urine. And that's one of the reasons that high animal protein diets are associated with um, more kidney stones, calcium mm -hmm. kidney stones. Um, but it also weakens our bones. So there may be a need to replace that calcium when you're eating a high animal protein diet that's not there when you're eating a diet based on fruits and vegetables. Yeah, and there's probably sounds... other reasons too that we don't fully understand, mm -hmm. but that's one of them. Yeah. And it's just, it's kind of mind blowing and counterintuitive for a lot of people, I think. Totally. So, okay. So when it comes to children, what are your recommendations currently when it comes to infants that are either breastfed or on formula and then the transition from infancy and when they're being weaned either from formula or the breast, what are the recommendations that you give in your office? Yeah, this is the number one question that I get from families and colleagues and just people out there is what do I do about milk? If, if, we, if we're not going to do dairy, how do we do this? So the first piece is that we need to change the recommendations and the cultural norms around breastfeeding. So the norm needs to be, or at least recognized, um, that the norm is that kids should breastfeed for two to three years at least. So right now, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends exclusive breastfeeding until one, um, but the World Health Organization recommends breastfeeding um, continue until at least two and longer if mom and baby desire. Um, and so I think I think two, two years old needs to be the new norm or the, or the old norm, depending how you look at it. This is how it should be. Um, and if a child is still breastfeeding, like a toddler is still breastfeeding, they don't need any other kind of milk. They're, you absolutely don't have to introduce cow's milk. You don't even have to introduce a plant-based milk. You can, um, you know, feel free to use it with oatmeal or to cook or bake with, like that's totally fine. But so many families feel like there's like an ounce per day that they absolutely have to get in. And if it's not from dairy, it's got to be from something else. So my, my first point is that if a child is still nursing and getting their mother's milk, it, they don't need anything else. That is the perfect situation. So I know that not every family can breastfeed and there's so many obstacles put in our way to be able to do that. Um, and we could have another whole talk about uh, the downfalls and shortcomings of public policy in the U.S. <laughs> around breastfeeding and maternal health and support, um, but it's just not there right now. So if a mom is unable to exclusively breastfeed and does need to introduce formula, then I would recommend a soy-based infant formula. It's not perfect. We could do better. Um, I hope somebody does do better. <laughs> um, I know people are working on it. Um, but for all of the reasons that I don't like 
young infants being exposed to cow's milk. I don't like cow's milk formula. Mm-hmm. Um, there is one company that just came out with a pea protein infant formula. Mm. I haven't used it, um, but that's another option out there. And I think the options are only going to keep growing. Um, so from zero to one, <clears throat> baby absolutely needs either breast milk or formula. Um, they're just, their gut is not mature enough to be able to absorb all of the nutrients that they need from food alone. So until one, you have to do breast milk or formula. After one, I think it gets um, much more flexible. So I would prefer that they keep breastfeeding. Um, but if they're not, which is what most people do, I would say the majority of my families start weaning off of breast milk um, uh, after the age of one, somewhere between one and two. For those kids, some of them are able to get everything they need from food and just drink water. But especially if you're on a plant-based diet that tends to be less calorie dense, it can be hard for kids to get in everything they need before they're full. So they have small tummies, they have short attention spans, and per kilogram, they need way more stuff than us. They need more calories, more protein, more fat, more micronutrients. Um, And so I think most kids who are weaning off of breast milk um, as a toddler would benefit from the addition of a nutritious beverage to help them meet those needs, um, specifically calories and fat. And so my first choice for those kids is soy milk. And that's what I did for, for my own kids. We use an unsweetened um, organic soy milk. And I, I like soy milk because it has um, a pretty balanced macronutrient profile. So it's got a good amount of calories. It has plenty of protein, probably more than we need, but plenty, um, and a good amount of fat. A lot of the other plant-based milks are sorely lacking in one of those things. So for example, almond milk is um, only has about a fifth the number of calories as soy milk and essentially zero fat and protein. Uh, There's just not much in there. It's mostly water. So giving a one and a half year old something like almond milk that's mostly water, they're going to fill up on that and have even less room to get in all the nutrients they need from food. So you do have to be careful when you're choosing a plant-based milk for a toddler when it's making up a big portion of their diet. Mm -hmm. So where does that leave us? Soy formula unsweetened soy milk for toddlers, and then past the age of about three, they don't really need anything. They could just drink whatever the family prefers based on taste and what you're using it for. So like, I'll use coconut milk for some recipes, like Thai curry is better with coconut milk, I think. Um, I like oat milk in my coffee sometimes. We like soy milk for baking. So you can change it up Once the kids are a little bit older, it doesn't really matter so much. Beautiful. I love it. That's great summary. Okay. So now we know about the dangers of dairy. We know that there's a reason why some practitioners still recommend it and why we as a culture are so stuck on dairy. And we have some ideas of how we can change that for our infants and our toddlers. But what steps can parents take if they're already well on the path of dairy consumption to reduce or eliminate dairy in their child's diet? 
Well, I think as you mentioned, there's no one approach that's going to work for every family. And so you kind of have to know your kid and know yourself and you can go fast or slow or, you know, there's a million ways to do it. There's not a, there's not one right way to do it. Um, but a couple of examples. So um, I'm sure we've both seen in clinic the, the milk monsters that are drinking like 24, 36 ounces of milk a day. Um, <laughs> they may they may be a tough case to say, just cut it out completely. Mm -hmm. um, so for, for families who are drinking a lot of cow's milk, one approach is just cut it by a couple of ounces every day or every week until you're done. Mm -hmm. Other families, like, you know, if, if a toddler's maybe just having like one bottle at bedtime, sometimes it's easier to just rip off the Band-Aid. Mm -hmm. I've had... Um, I've seen families run into a lot of trouble when they try to replace it with something else because for most kids, the comfort factor is more important than the nutrition. Mm -hmm. And so if it's, you know, it's like taking away their favorite stuffed animal and trying to replace it, like you can't replace it. It's almost easier to just stop that habit altogether and just not do a bottle at night. Um, so that two different ways to approach just the volume of cow's milk and then for, um, for kids of any age, I think it's important to make them a part of the conversation and a part of the plan. And obviously that has to be age appropriate. Um, you know, how much uh, decision-making power you're going to give them can go up as they get older. But even a two-year-old, you can explain to them why you're making this change, that it's healthy for our bodies, that we're going to be doing things differently. Here's what to expect. Kids always do better when they know what to expect. Um, and make them kind of part of the team. Um, and even ask, you know, ask their preference. Like, you have to be careful about giving choices to young kids. But for example, you could say, would you rather stop tomorrow or next week? Like, let's set a date on the calendar and make it a fun event. Um, and so I think for, for families who are up to it, going cold turkey, there's a lot of benefit. Um, I think. I love the analogy of cigarette smoking where like you would never tell a smoker to just cut down to two a day when they're trying to quit because that taste just makes them want more. And that is absolutely the case for me. Like when I do have like a really high fat meal or cheese sneaks into like a work party or something, I notice that I want it the next day. Mm -hmm. And so for a lot of people, including myself, it's much easier to just be done um, and let your taste buds adjust to the new normal, and it'll it'll cut down on cravings. It'll actually make it easier to change going quickly. Um, so so if they're up for that, I I talk about that. But a lot of people are ready for a slower change. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we mentioned like my first recommendation is to either start cutting down or stop drinking cow's milk completely. Mm -hmm. And if you want to switch to an alternative, great. If you want to go cold turkey to water, great. But that would be my first recommendation. Um, and then the cheese is harder to tackle, for sure. Um, and there is still the cold turkey option, which I would highly endorse. Um, but, I, but I also think the vegan cheeses can be a helpful bridge. Mm -hmm. they, they are absolutely not the end goal. They are processed. They are still high in saturated fat. Um, but if it gets you off of dairy, great. And then we can slowly work on eating less of it. Mm -hmm. And for most, for most people and kids in particular, 
the vegan cheeses don't have the same appeal. They're not going to overeat them. They're not going to crave them as much. So it is easier to kind of slowly decrease and get rid of them over time. Yeah, I completely agree. And that was going to be my next question anyway, is what about the cheese? What do you recommend for that? But I think the way that I recommend it too, is for some kids that they're just really stuck on the cheese and they need some sort of alternative for those things that are really a little bit more difficult to do whenever your friends are having like a cheese pizza, or you just really want a grilled cheese sandwich, something like that, then I think that they can be helpful, like you were saying, as a transition point to get them over that hump of like feeling like they never get to have it again, sort of. Yeah. And as a social point too, like you said, like it can be hard for kids. Like one of the most important things in childhood is to feel included um, with your peer group. And so using vegan food products in as a way to make kids feel like they are included I think that's totally fine. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't want it to be a staple every day, but judicious use like that, I, I totally agree with. And there's so many more products on the market and they are getting better tasting and yep. more acceptable for people that were really hardcore cheese yes. people. I was yeah. never a cheese person. So cheese was not one of those things I missed. I missed milk and I definitely missed ice cream, but that's not ah. even a, an issue anymore because the alternatives are so, so like, I mean, good. seriously coconut ice cream. I mean, I think that's even more rich than cow's milk ice cream. So yeah. The next thing that happens to families is say they listen to this podcast and they're just like, all right, I'm going to do it. I'm ready this time. They try it for a week and then grandma comes over and grandma's like, oh no, you know (laughs) that, you know, that little Sally needs to have milk. You, you have to give her milk. Otherwise this and this, and this is going to happen. Or a neighbor says your child needs, that's crazy. Those are crazy people talking. It's going to happen. And it happens a lot in our society. So what kind of advice do you give for parents when they have well-meaning because they all are loving people that mean well, well well-meaning family members, friends, and physicians Mm -hmm. that push dairy and want their want the parents to give dairy to their child. Yeah, I think this is the hardest part about going plant-based or vegan is the social pressure, the families, the friends, all that kind of stuff. Um, the people that are giving you a hard time are coming usually from one of two places. Uh, genuine concern, in which case they should be, they should accept your answer of, my child is growing and developing and is healthy. So there's no need to worry. Um, Or they're coming from a place of defensiveness. Mm. So I think most people realize that eating more fruits and vegetables and less saturated fat is probably good for us. And when they see you doing it, they realize they're not doing as good as they could and a lot of the negative commentary, I think, comes from, from a, that, from defensiveness of like, you are somehow attacking what I'm doing just by what you're doing, even when you're not preaching or doing anything else. So I think recognizing that underlying motivation and responding to them from a place of compassion and humility gets you a lot farther than going on the attack. Mm-hmm. which I learned the hard way and is hard <laughs> to do. Like I, when I, when we first made the transition, I was like, everybody's got to hear this. Everybody needs to know. I mailed out copies of the China study, like got really preachy. 
Um, and that doesn't, that doesn't get you very far. So um, answering those uh, concerned family and friends with, with humility, like it seems to be working really well for us. Um, I feel really good, you know, pointing out the good that has happened, pointing out if you can, that your pediatrician thinks your kids are doing great. Even if they're not 100% supportive of it, they should be able to recognize that, okay, this child is growing and developing normally. They're tracking on their growth charts. You know, they are healthy and thriving. And so even though I might be uncomfortable or not knowledgeable of this choice, it's clearly working out okay. And so you can pass that on to family and friends, like growth charts are good, you know, we're doing well. Um, and then sometimes you're going to get pushback no matter how gently you answer them. Um, and then you, you just uh, carefully remove yourself from that conversation. Mm -hmm. That person isn't ready to have a conversation about it. They're just attacking and, and that's not going to get anybody anywhere. Yeah. No, it's interesting that you brought up the defensiveness because I do feel like our, as humans, when we're trying to reconcile these things, you know, this cognitive dissonance that we get, right. we're going to try to reconcile it, even if we don't consciously realize we're doing it. So your family member isn't going to say, oh, you're making me feel insecure about my own dietary choices. They're just going to start making excuses of why that does not match their paradigm of how yeah. they want it to be. And I think also it's just about being patient yeah. and sticking your, sticking to your ground, sticking to your choice and waiting, <laughs> you know, yeah. just like once you continue to do it, then it's kind of like the newness wears off for everybody else and they stop asking and pushing and, and those kinds of things. So yeah, it's definitely a touchy subject sometimes, and it can be difficult to navigate the pathways when it comes to family. Some of the coolest messages I've gotten are from people who I didn't even realize were paying attention, you know, and it's been years and they're like, so I've been sort of covertly following what you're doing and, and now I have questions, you know, and I never would have thought, you know, from people who are hardcore meat lovers. Um, so leading by example and just letting them see that you're doing well. And then one of my favorite things to do is feeding them delicious food when they don't even realize what they're eating. So I love hosting um, parties, especially kids' birthday parties and doing just a delicious plant-based spread because everybody leaves with, you know, one more really positive exposure to plant-based eating, whether they wanted it or not, <laughs> they now have a better um, outlook on how it could be. Because I think people always just picture like us eating kale all day. Yeah. You know, and when you serve them like burritos and really rich, satisfying food, it's eye-opening. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing because I think back before I understood plant-based nutrition, and I probably had that same image in my mind of like, oh my God, there's no way I could eat salad every meal. Right. I mean, like, what am I going to eat? Like, it's going to be like, I'm going to be hungry. And but uh -huh. no, it's like the opposite, right? I mean, like our food is delicious. So whenever you like sneakily present this food to people and it, it's just food, right? You don't have to call it vegan. You don't have to call it right. plant-based. You can just call it food, call it for what it is. And then people really like it. Then they start getting curious, like, oh, I could eat this. And what I hear from people often is, 
well, if you cooked for me, I could definitely eat this way all the time. <laughs> well, you can do it too. I promise. It's not that difficult. Uh huh. Okay. So this has all been fantastic. Um, I want to go back really quick and touch very briefly on something you said earlier, because I think that this is a really important point. Whenever you were talking about milk and the evidence that children that drink a lot of milk may in fact grow taller. Mm -hmm. And we have some evidence of that. And there might be some families that it is very important for them, for their child to be tall because either they weren't tall or they want their kid to be tall or whatever. What are your thoughts on that? It's such an interesting phenomenon. So I, parents come in all the time and if their child is below average on the growth charts for height or weight, even when they are well within normal and growing perfectly, they worry. Mm -hmm. So everybody, this American culture of bigger is better. Like everybody wants their kid to be above average height and weight. They want the big boys, especially they want the big, strong boy, you know, the fat, chunky baby is better. Um, those perceptions are so ingrained in our culture. It can be really hard to fight. And, and I see the opposite too. Kids will come in overweight and nobody in the family realizes that they're overweight, um, partly because they all look the same and, and overweight has unfortunately become sort of our new normal. So I think the last um, CDC survey showed that uh, over 30% of kids are now either overweight or obese. So when we look around every day, um, that's what we're seeing. So I think perceptions are off. And I think the assumption that bigger is better is, is very ingrained in our culture. Um, but the evidence is pretty clear that bigger is not better. So um, kids who grow faster and are taller during childhood have higher rates of disease in adulthood. They get more cancer, they get more heart disease, and they die younger. Um, and this is not just true in humans, but throughout the animal kingdom. Uh, slower growth and being smaller when you're in your youth is associated with increased health and longer lifespan. Those are really big concepts to get across in a, you know, five-minute office visit when parents just want their big, strong boy. But I think we have to start changing the discussion around this, um, that bigger is not better. And vegan kids, by the way, grow just fine. <laughs> there's, you know, there's some evidence that they um, grow a little bit slower in the early years. Um, and that they have a later growth spurt and later puberty, but um, they end up at the same adult height. And one study actually showed they, they actually end up taller mm -hmm. because their growth phase is longer. So, so I have zero concerns about kids on a plant-based diet, you know, being too small, too short, you know, failing to thrive. Um, th those concerns are just not true. And, and in fact, those things can be, you know, the slower growth and being smaller can actually be beneficial. Yeah. I mean, that's so fascinating because we have so many assumptions based upon height that taller is always better and you want your kid to be tall. And I don't know if you saw that one study, I'm not going to remember it exactly, but there was a one study that compared milks with the cow's milk and the soy milk. And I think it was like three or four different kinds of milks. And the 
children that had drank cow's milk in the end by a certain amount of time, there, there was a height difference and they were taller, Yep, but it was by like two centimeters. Right. It, it wasn't like this huge thing. It wasn't like inches and inches of height. So you know, when you see headlines too, you have to make sure that you read things. But also like for me, I don't think I want my child to be taller at the expense of increased risk of cancer, increased risk of heart disease. So whenever we start associating those things and understand, well, if you're going to try to do something, which we don't have that much control, really, we don't really have much control over our kids' height, you know, <laughs> anyway, but right. if you did... I don't think I would do it that way based upon the detriments of dairy and what we've discussed earlier. So yeah, I, I remember, to, yeah, I remember those studies too. And the headlines always say like plant-based milks associated with stunting in kids. Mm -hmm. Whereas the headline should really say uh, cow's milk consumption associated with inappropriate uh, growth and height in kids. Mm -hmm. um, the plant-based kids are probably following a more normal, um, natural curve. And also with those studies, they often only follow the kids for like a couple months, maybe a year or two. Um, and there's very few studies that follow them five years, 10 years, you know, into adulthood. And, and like I said, those studies show, you know, basically the same height. So, yeah, I'm not a good like encyclopedia of remembering studies, but I know that it wasn't final adult height. It was right. some at some point in their childhood or adolescence that they did the final measurement. So they weren't all the way done growing, but yeah. it, it was like, of course the headline right away, it's, yeah. it's fear mongering because then people are like, Oh my God, it, I, I, my child needs to drink milk or they're not going to be as tall as I want them to be. And really the, the difference was negligible, but also remember, even if there is a small difference, think about what the dangers can be of dairy and excess dairy consumption. Right. What do you wish more parents knew? I think the, the number one thing that comes to mind is that I wish we appreciated how important childhood nutrition is. I think a lot of people feel like kids just get a pass, you know, like we just sort of expect them to eat like crap for a couple of years because that's what kids do. They're picky eaters. We have, you know, the entire food industry has convinced us that they need different food than us that they need different menus at the restaurants than us, that kids eat differently and poorly. And that's just to be expected. They'll figure it out later. Um, when I think exactly the opposite is true, which is that what we eat during childhood has a huge impact on our lifelong health, not just how we feel now, but as we've touched on, like what we eat in childhood affects our risk for cancer in adulthood, our risk for heart disease in adulthood. It can literally turn genes on or off that won't be expressed until adulthood. Our lifespan, these huge, big lifelong issues that are set by what we feed our kids in the first couple of years. And so we should absolutely not be writing off those few years. In fact, I would make the case that we should be militant <laughs> for the first few years of life. Um, you know, from zero to two or three, parents have 100% control over what their kids eat, parents and caregivers and teachers. Um, once they get to, you know, preschool and they start going to birthday parties and they start wanting to eat with their friends eat, it gets more challenging. Mm -hmm. But for the first few years, you really are in control. And those are the most important years. 
And so why not just go all the way? You know, kids aren't born asking for birthday cake and hot dogs. Mm -hmm. We teach them that. Well, what if you just never taught them that? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, when they get to be four or five and they ask for it, you can cross that bridge. You can have that conversation, but there is absolutely no need to make things harder for yourself in the first few years. You can just choose to never feed them sugar or dairy or processed meat. Um, and they will be so much better for it. That is a beautiful message. And it's so empowering because I feel like a lot of parents need that. They need to feel empowered that they can actually make that choice, especially when their children are young. You have way more control than you think you do. And yeah. it's okay. It's okay to not feed your kids some of these foods whenever you're starting them out on this path of lifelong health promoting habits. Yeah. And they, you know, the, the, the next question I always get is, well, aren't they missing out? Don't you worry that you're depriving them of, you know, these pleasurable experiences? Like I have such fond memories of going to the ice cream shop when I was a kid and they're not going to have that. Um, well, first of all, they're not missing it because they don't know any better. And second of all, I'm not saying you can never go to the ice cream shop. I'm saying maybe don't give your one and a half year old ice cream. But later on, like absolutely things, you can have things as a treat that as a celebration, that's fine. But those first few years, there's just no need and they're not going to miss it. Yeah. Awesome. I love it. What personal habit are you most proud of? How did you develop it and how do you maintain it? Oof. Okay. Um, I'm going to give you a more, one of the more recent ones we've done, which is not strictly plant-based nutrition. Um, but probably about a year or two ago, my husband and I started doing, uh, the time restricted eating. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of evidence that fasting is really good for our bodies and that we were built to have periods of time in our life where we didn't eat or we ate very little. Um, and that's another sort of, um, it just sounds very strange in our culture now because we are programmed to eat every few hours. Um, and it's amazing what your body can actually do. You can go a long time without eating and be totally fine. So, so there's lots of benefits to fasting. And one of the easiest ways to sort of gently incorporate it into your life is just prolong the natural fast that happens when we're sleeping at night. So most of us already are fasting for maybe eight hours from bedtime until wake. Um, and so one of the things that we did uh, slowly was increase that time. So, so now I'm at the point where most days, it's definitely not perfect, um, but most days I don't eat before like 8 or 8.30 in the morning and I stop eating at about 7 p.m. So now my fasting window is, you know, more like 12 hours instead of 8 and there's really good evidence that that is very good for us. Mm -hmm. um, and it was hard to do at first, and there were a lot of slip-ups, and now I feel like it's, I think I, I think I can officially call it a habit. Like, that is what I do. It doesn't feel hard. I'm not craving food, you know, first thing in the morning like I used to. And so that's been one positive change that I've incorporated more recently, kind of taking it you know, taking that next step beyond just um, what are you eating, but how are you eating that? And I've noticed a huge difference. Like it's, 
it's much easier to fall asleep if you haven't eaten late at night. So sleep better and easier to maintain weight and all sorts of good stuff. Yeah. Especially when people have the habit of late night snacking, like snacking before bed and snacking in front of the TV and things like that. That's a a good place to start is just don't eat after your dinner and start seeing what that feels like. And in the research that I did for my book, I realized that in the past, like, like 50 to 70 years, the number of times that we eat has almost doubled. So it used to be around three times per day that we would eat. And now it's around seven times per day. Oh, wow. So we're just kind of like stuck on this whole, we need to eat all the time. And I think also like personal trainers and people have been recommending, Hey, you don't be hungry because that's bad for your metabolism or something. And so you should eat every two hours and never experience hunger. And so we're almost afraid of hunger thinking that it's going to be a bad thing. And we haven't learned how to take those prolonged fasts that we used to have all the time. So yeah, that's, it's a very interesting path and journey to go on. So congratulations on starting that journey for yourself. Thanks. Yeah. New habits are are hard <laughs> and I feel like there's less of them as you get older. Got to have to put a lot more conscious effort into making changes. Yeah. Especially the ones that you've had for a long time that you yeah. want to change. So yeah. Well, this has been really great. I just want to close on how can listeners connect with you if they want to follow you on social media, your website, what kind of things can you offer them? Yeah. So um, Instagram is probably where I'm most active and you can find me at plant-based pediatrician. Um, And that's also my handle on Facebook too. And then I I do have a website, www.plantbasedpediatrician.com. Um, and there's lots of good resources up there and you can email me, um, with questions. I will try to get back to you. Um, I have a full-time private practice here in California that, um, I have had people, you know, come and see me and you're welcome to do that. I haven't figured out how to do virtual consults yet. That's kind of the next horizon. I wish I could. But for now, it's mostly social media, email, and if, if you want to make the drive to Santa Cruz. <laughs> and Santa Cruz is very nice. Which it's is a lovely a beautiful place. place. <laughs> I've been there before. I love it. And my husband's a big fan of the Santa Cruz mountain bikes. So that's another oh, yeah. reason we went there and we got to see their little shop. So, well, thank you so much. This has been super high yield, like super just lovely. Such a great conversation. Thank you so much for lending us your knowledge and your experience. I know that this episode is going to help so many people. So I appreciate you so much. Well, and I have to say thank you so much for putting yourself out there. I meant to tell this story in the beginning, but when I first started, like when I first went plant-based myself and was trying to figure out, wow, can I really tell my patients about this? Is it really okay for kids there's far fewer resources for pediatrics. And so I was frantically searching and Googling and I found you online and emailed you, I think in like 2010, like, please help. How do I do this? So you're like my plant-based pediatrician mentor. And I'm just so happy that there are other people out there doing it and you've, you've put yourself out there and um, I just really appreciate it. So thank you. Oh, wow. Did I reply to you? You did. You were okay, lovely. good. <laughs> because sometimes I don't get around to replying to people. I'm sorry for people that email me. And if you get me in a busy time, 
it might be hard, but that's so cool. I didn't know yeah, that story. Totally. So thank yeah. you so much. That makes me feel great. So <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> well, hopefully we'll be seeing each other around soon at the conferences and get to see each other in person. And I hope that you have a very plantastic day. Thanks, Yami. You too. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for tuning in. And I look forward to having you back again next week. A very special thank you to the band Rocket Surgeons for permission to use the broccoli song. To find out more about the Rocket Surgeons, please visit their website at rocketsurgeonsband.com or Facebook at Rocket Surgeons Music. Please subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Also, all of my social media links can be found in the podcast description. Send me a message and let me know what you think of today's podcast sharing is caring. Please share, rate, and review my podcast and drop me a line if you have ideas for future episodes. Thank you once again and have a plantastic day. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.